Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. Uh, somebody said on the way in, it's just good to see people this morning. Uh, it's been a crazy week in our area, a whole week of ice and snow, and there are enjoyable and not so enjoyable parts of a week full of ice and snow. I hope your week has had more enjoyable ones than not. But we do have some of our church members, our church family members who, uh, who are dealing with busted pipes or frozen pipes or sickness and some of those sorts of things. So we didn't know how many people could make it this morning, but we're glad you're here. Hope everybody got the word. There'll be no five o'clock worship tonight, but we're glad we could uh, find a way to be together today and worship God on the first day of the week, just like Christians have done for 2,000 years. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, thank you for being here. We're, I, I was surprised to see how many visitors have come today to brave the wind chills and the icy neighborhoods and some of those things. We're glad you're here. We hope we get to meet you before you go. We always like our visitors to know who we're trying to be. We're just trying to be Christians. We're trying to follow Jesus Christ, be undenominational followers of His. We'd love for you to join us in that. If you have any questions about Great Oaks or about Christianity, uh, please let us know. Really glad you're here today. Let's have a prayer, and then we'll start our lesson together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for getting us through the week. Uh, we're thankful for uh, the joys of a snowy week. We're thankful for uh, the kids having fun. We're thankful for slowing down a little bit in life. But God, we do pray for all those who, are, who have had struggles, who have had uh, water pressure issues or uh, pipe issues. God, as things thaw out, I pray you'd be with uh, everyone that will be dealing with all of that. God, we pray you keep us safe through the rest of this and uh, be with us till we get back to a more, a more normal schedule. God, we're thankful for worship. We're thankful that in your plan we can come together to start every week. God, I pray that our heart has already been with you as we've worshiped. And I pray it will be the same as we study your word. As we do open your word together, God, I pray that what is said will be what you want to be said and that we'll grow from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our theme this year here at Great Oaks is Shaped by the Gospel, and we are starting that by taking a journey through the book of Romans. You can see my picture here of part of the famous Roman roads. They used to say that all roads lead to Rome. The Romans had this extensive road network that at the time was the best thing the world had ever seen. Uh, so we're taking a journey through the book of Romans, all about the gospel, but so much texture that goes into the gospel in the book of Romans. So if you're with us last week, we tried to begin this series by introducing the big picture. What is the story behind Romans? We saw Paul, whose life has been transformed by the gospel, who used to kill Christians but now is trying to help people become Christians. He is writing to the church at Rome that he's never been to. He's preached all over the place, but he's never been to Rome. He says, I want to come to you and then I want to go to Spain. And so he's writing this letter to try to help them in a couple ways. First of all, for them to know what he teaches, the gospel of Jesus. But also it seems like there's some Jew-Gentile disunity in the church. And he's trying to bring them together as he talks about the gospel. And so we'll get to see all those things. What I want us to do today is overview the first two and a half chapters. Uh, get into the third chapter a little bit. And so we're not going to read all of that. But we're going to hop and skip through it to get the main first big thought that Paul has. I've called it, Why We Need the Gospel. I want to start with this question. If someone asked you to share the gospel with them, where would you start? Where would you start? Now, part of that might depend on the context. If it's a 
just a passing by. You might have to get quicker into the story than you might otherwise. If you'd be able to sit down and talk a little deeper, you could say a little bit more. But where would you even start? I mean, there's so much in the story of Jesus, and that's the Gospels aim the story of Jesus. Where would you start? Where would you go? Where would you begin? What I want us to see today is Paul starts in an interesting place, and I don't know if it's where you would have started or where I would have started, but it is where the book of Romans starts. As Paul has a chance, writing letters was not a simple task in the first century. So Paul's got probably weeks to, to get this letter together, to have a guy, chapter 16 tells us, the guy's name was Tertius, who was the, the scribe who's writing out the letter for Paul. So he's got time to put this together. And this is where Paul starts. So let's read, this has been our theme verse of the year and this series. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he starts explaining it. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Again, that word righteousness, we don't use it a lot, but you see the word right. It means the rightness of God. God does right. The rightness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Helps us live by faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And then look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, so God is all good, and and ungodliness is not good, and unrighteousness of men. So we saw God is righteous, God is good, but the wrath of God is against the ungodliness and the unrightness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. As Paul begins talking about the gospel, he starts by talking about the wrath of God. Wow. May not be where you would have started, may not be where I would have started, but that's where Paul begins this deeper explanation of what the gospel is all about. And you notice I put a question mark and an exclamation point there, because how many sermons have you heard in your life about the wrath of God? My impression is those who are older in our group have probably heard a little bit more than those of us who are younger. But the wrath of God is in the Bible. What is going on there? Why does Paul start there? In fact, the book of Romans... All about the gospel. Twelve times we'll say something about the wrath of God. Uh, So we saw there in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all things that are not right. Uh, We'll see it in chapter 2. We won't get to this verse today besides just putting it up right here um, because we'll hop and skip over it. He says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He says, and we just keep living for sin. We are storing up God's wrath against us because the day is coming, he says, when God is going to, His wrath is going to come against all sin of all time. Why do we struggle with the idea of God's wrath? Why is it something we don't talk about as much today? Well, I think, I think sometimes we picture God's wrath as if it's human wrath, and those are two very different things. Because we see someone, a human, showing wrath. We think of someone looking unhinged and silly and punching walls and screaming and, and just looking like they're not acting right. That's, that's not what God's wrath is all about in the Bible. In fact, I've heard it described this way for the outline. I think this is a good way in my mind to picture it. God's wrath is His settled opposition to sin and its effects. 
God's settled opposition. It's not, it's not that God is running around screaming, hitting walls, saying things he shouldn't say. That's, that's human wrath. That's not, that's not God. God's wrath is a settled anger against all the evil in the world. The same type of thing I hope you feel sometimes when you see the evil in the world. The same type of thing I feel sometimes when I, feel the, when I see the evil in the world. And people ask, well, how does that feel with God's love? I mean, isn't, doesn't the Bible say God is love in 1 John chapter 4 and it's all over Scripture? Well, these two are more connected than we might think. Because if you love someone and you see them making decisions that hurt themselves and hurt others and, and hurt their soul, there's part of you that feels that same feeling, that it's almost an anger How can you do this? How can you hurt yourself? You're loved. Don't act like this. Don't hurt these other people. God's wrath and God's love are much more connected than maybe the world understands from the outside looking in. And so Paul begins by saying, we need the gospel because God settled opposition against all the evil in this world. That day's coming when all that's going to be made right and it's going to be punished appropriately. And God knows how to do that much better than you and I do. But the Bible's clear that He's going to do it. He's going to make that punishment. And so the problem in Romans 1 through 3, here's what I want us to do with the rest of our time. Since he starts with the wrath of God against all the evil in the world, we're going to notice that's what Paul says the big problem is. We're going to see his main thoughts in chapters 1 through 3. And then I've got, you see there on the outline, a few things I hope we take home from all that. And that'll be our lesson this morning. This is what Paul says is our main problem. This is what the Bible says is our main problem, is sin. Sin, doing things uh, that are not right before God, missing the mark is a phrase I always heard preachers say growing up, and I think that's, that's an accurate way because that's the way the word is used sometimes. I don't know what you think your biggest problem in life is. I don't know if you think your biggest problem is money. I don't know if you think your biggest problem is a a person in your life. I don't know if you think your biggest problem is just the, the struggles of making it along the way. The Bible's clear our biggest problem is sin. And so we need someone to help us with that. That's why the gospel starts here. I've got three things here that I think Paul says in Romans 1 through 3. Number one, Paul says sin is a problem of they. They. We're going to notice a progression in the way Paul describes it here. He starts by talking about how sin is a they thing. Almost like it's it's not personal yet. It's the type of thing you and I do when we sit around and talk about how frustrating the world is and how we wish it was better and how isn't it sad how people act the way they act? Isn't it sad how there's wars and people whose lives are completely unturned because of war and problems? It's the way we talk about it. It's, it's they. And that's how he starts. In verse 21, part of what Riley read a minute ago. Even though they knew God, the world, they knew God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Under this they section, I want to point out a few things Paul says about sin, if you're keeping the outline with us, about the drift, because that's what the rest of chapter 1 is, about this drift into sin that all humanity has taken. First of all, I want us to notice that pride is behind all of it. There is a pride element in all of sin. Sin is not an accident. Sin is not... Uh, something we, we, we just sort of found ourselves in. I'll, I guess in some ways it is, but, it, but we didn't get there but without some steps being taken intentionally. There's a pride element to sin. Look at what he says in the wording of chapter 1. Verse 18 says, we've already read this one, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness 
of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He says, when we go down this path away from God, we have to suppress the truth, almost like we're pushing it down inside of us. We know it's there. We know it's true. We know God is real, but we push it down. We hide it because we want to go our own prideful way. Because that's what he says in verse 19. What is known about God is evident within them. We're still talking them as if we're not part of it yet. But it's evident within humanity, for God made it evident. God has made himself clear, Paul says. And for us to leave God, we've got to suppress what we really know to be true, that God is really there. He says in verse 20, God's made himself clear. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. How often do we look at nature? I hope, I hope everyone does this. I hope we all do this. You look at nature and you say, you say, wow, God is amazing. To see a sunset or to see the snowfall on day one, maybe not day seven, but the snowfall on day one. You say, wow, this is amazing. Creation is amazing. God, God's goodness, we see His power, we see it behind creation. Says God, that's God showing you that this is real, that He is there. And we suppress that to take the path of sin. He says, you're without excuse. There, there's, there's no good excuse for, for sin. There's no good excuse for leaving God. God has made Himself evident to us. Verse 21 says, even though we, they, we're doing the they thing still in this chapter, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. They knew he was there. They said, I want to do my own thing. I want to live for me. And so they have their own speculations, professing to be wise, verse 22. It's so sad how, how the sinful world, how we, we talk ourselves into thinking we're smarter than God. Like we're smarter than Scripture, we're smarter than the, the Christians doing their thing. Um, there's a pride element behind all sin, and that's where he starts. I also notice in this section the darkened hearts idea. This has jumped out at me more in the last couple of years. I think I shared this in a sermon here recently, that here in Romans 1, uh, we read verse 21. He says, We became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. When you choose sin, your heart is darkened a little bit. Um, C.S. Lewis said a lot about this. He was big on this idea that when you sin, it's not just an act. It is an act, but it's not just an act. It's an act that changes you a little bit. And I think he's right about that. I think that's what's going on in, in, in Romans altogether, but also here in verse 21. That when you sin, your heart is darkened. When you step toward God, your heart becomes a little lighter, more, more the light of God. But there are choices being made there. And so as you read through Romans, as we read through Romans... We're going to see sin is not just an act. Sin is also a power. It's a power that we need the help of God to get out of our life. It's also, it's also a state. You can be in sin or under sin. I mean, it's like a state of life that you've walked away from God. This, this drift away from God is described as a, as a darkening of ourselves and our souls. Also notice in this section, God lets us choose. Really, honestly choose. I don't know that I would have. Thankfully, I'm not God for all sorts of reasons. But there, it, like you think about with your own kids. There's part of with your own kids, you almost wish you could make their decisions for them sometimes, don't you? 
You almost wish you could say, oh, that's not a good decision. Just, just trust me. Take this one. You almost wish you could, could not really give them choice. God, in his eternal wisdom, gave real, honest choice. But there's some bad things that can come from that. We, we want that, in theory. We want choice. We want to choose whether we're really following God or not. But God really lets us do it. And you see that echo here in chapter 1. So let's read through the here from verse 24 through the rest of the chapter of chapter 1. Still in the they section of, of sin. And just notice how God allows people to choose it. Doesn't mean he stops reaching out. Doesn't mean he stops loving. God's, God still wants us to be saved and he's reaching out to us. But he'll let you leave. Somebody I read said this week, it will break his heart, but he will let you leave. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. So verse 25 there, they started making idols. God could have said, no, I'm not going to let you do that. But no, he honestly gave them choice. Breaks his heart, but lets the world chase their idols if they really want their idols. Verse 26 and verse 24, by the way, I think he's talking about sexual sin. The sexual sin idea continues in verse 26. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Those verses are clearly describing homosexual activity. The Bible's clear um, from beginning to end. This is not the only verse that talks about homosexuality. This is something we've got to talk about today because our, our culture from the outside tends to, under, to misunderstand what Scripture is saying about this matter. The Bible's clear, your sexual actions are your decision. Whatever attractions you feel in any direction, you've got to decide, how am I going to act and how am I not going to act? And so the Bible's clear, God wants male and female to be married for life, and that's where the sexual relationship is supposed to be and only there. Anything outside of that is sin. Part of the drift of sin is, is sexual sin in all sorts of directions, including homosexuality. If you want to talk about that more later, we can. Um, sometimes people really misunderstand uh, what Christians feel about this. What we'll notice, let me say this too before we keep going. You'll notice this is in a list of sins. It's not held up as a super sin, an unforgivable sin, the sin above all sins. It is a sin. The Bible's clear about that. But you'll notice there's a lot of others in this list. What I want us to notice this morning, as we're pointing out here, God lets people choose. You want to choose sin? It'll break His heart but He really lets you choose to leave. And then verse 28 starts this longer list. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. See the pride there? God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. They're inventing new ways to be evil. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Do you see that? 
the world, we're still in the they section, the world has just gone in so many sinful directions. And they not only do these sinful things, they celebrate those who do them. Somebody was just telling me this morning about a, a show they watched uh, earlier today, uh, before they came into worship service today, that was celebrating sins, looking back at a, a sinful thing that happened several years ago and just how the world is trying to turn into a, a celebration of the, the courage that was taken to sin against God. That's what our world does. We celebrate evil. But then, we'll, we spent more time on that one these second two, but then secondly, Paul's going to say, sin is also a problem of you. It's a problem of me. It's easy for us to gather together and say that is sinful and that is wrong. And we should do that. We should highlight what is right and what is wrong. God does that for us. That We just read scripture that does that. But then Paul looks at the reader and says, you, sin is a problem of you also. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. We're not doing they or them anymore. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He says the problem is, you and I, are part of the they. You and I are part of the humanity that has pridefully said, I know what God says, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And we've gone the path of the prodigal son, and we've said, give me my inheritance, I'm going to go live how I want to live. Hopefully we come back like the prodigal son does in the story Jesus told. But sometimes people just get stuck out there and just keep chasing sin and keep chasing sin. He says, you're part of this too. And just because you can say, here's a sin and here's not a sin, and here's a sin and here's not a sin, that doesn't make you any better. You're still in the same category. We think he's talking to Jews here. In fact, if you have it open there in front of you, you can look further down in chapter 2, and he's going to start saying, just because you're a Jew, those who had grown up knowing the Old Testament, those who had grown up following the prophets, he says, just because you're a Jew and you know the Word of God, if you're doing the same things, you're a sinner just like the Gentiles are. The Jews were tempted to think because they'd had a, a deeper religious background and weren't chasing all the sins of the Gentiles, they tended to think the Gentiles were the really bad ones. And, and my sin's not really that bad or that big a deal. If you grew up going to church, uh, your, your situation, like mine, may be more similar to the Jews in the first century. You grew up hearing the Word of God. Maybe you were encouraged to follow the Word of God. Maybe you didn't get into a group of people that chase sin as far down the path. But Paul's point here is, you're all still in the same boat. Sometimes the Jews then, and maybe people today as well, Christians today as well, might be tempted to say, well, I'm better than them. And what does that even mean? What does it even mean? Like sinless? I mean, none of us are sinless. That's the point. The point is, all of us are part of the problem. And when we're so tempted, it's easy to judge others. It's easy to say what they're doing wrong and what they're doing wrong and what they're doing wrong, and we make excuses for our own sins. We say, well, I was in a hard situation. Well, you know, I, I just I misunderstood and things were difficult and one thing led to another. Like, we, we're really good. We're really good at making up excuses for why our sins are not bad, but other people's are. And I think Romans and the rest of the Bible 
is trying to get us to look at ourselves and recognize I am a sinner and I'm part of the problem. That's where the gospel starts. Number three then, in chapter three, he's going to get into sin is a problem of all. It's a problem of they, it's a problem of you and me, it's a problem of all. Let me put a few verses up here, and these are pretty well-known verses. I won't even say much about them, but we're going to read them together. Romans 3, verses 9 and 10. As Paul's pulling all this first big thought together in Romans, he says, what then? Are we better than they? There it is again. What does that, what does that even mean? Are, are we Jews better than they Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. All under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. A few verses later. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, and talking about, you see the capital L there on law, talking about the Old Testament law of Moses. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Do you hear what that verse is saying? Part of the reason God gave the Old Testament all those years before Jesus came was to show every single person is a sinner. Every mouth is closed before God. None of us go before God and say, hey, I got it all right. I'm, I'm, I'm the perfect one. I'm better than them. He says, no, every, every mouth is closed because we realize God is right and good and we have not been. And we have hurt ourselves and others. And then verse 23, Romans 3, 23 the classic statement, probably the best known statement of this idea in Scripture. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. As Paul begins explaining the gospel, the first big thing he wants us to know, we are all sinners. Every single one of us. From the time you get old enough to make decisions, and that's a whole other conversation. We can talk about that afterwards if you'd like to. But as I understand Scripture... If I understand it correctly, um, the Bible says that as you get older, you're not making moral decisions until you reach what we sometimes call an age of accountability. Um, Isaiah and some other places call it uh, where you're, you're deciding between good and evil. You don't know right and wrong. But from the time you get old enough to really make right and wrong choices, not just copying actions, not just acting out of instinct, but really making right and wrong choices, all of us have chosen to sin. And so we're all in that boat. And that's what Paul wants us to see. There's better news that continues in chapter 3, and uh, we'll get to dig into that more next week. But what I want us to do for these last couple minutes, what do you want to take home from these first two and a half chapters where Paul really focuses in on sin, the sin problem, and how the wrath of God is, is so against the sin of the world? I've got three quick things here. Number one, I hope it helps us see God with more thankfulness. When you recognize you're a sinner and you recognize you don't deserve what God has offered you in Jesus Christ, there should be a level of thankfulness there. And, and we're always in awe of God's wisdom, how every Sunday Christians are supposed to come together to start the week to take the Lord's Supper, just to be reminded, to be reminded that Jesus died for me. It, it was my fault. I'm the one that left. I'm the one that was prideful. Might have given up on myself, but, but God did not. God loved enough to keep reaching out to send His own Son who came willingly to die for us. There should be a level of thankfulness when I've really internalized that sin is part of what I've chosen in life. 
Secondly, I hope it helps us see others with more love. It's far too easy to look down on people who are in sin instead of trying to encourage them to get out of that and follow Jesus Christ. And sadly, the world has seen some bad examples of that in Christians. They've seen Christians who seem to be excited to tell everyone else how bad they were or to to be more judgmental, and that's become a stereotype in our society about Christianity. Let's not feed into that. Let's make sure we as Christians are trying to show people we really want you to follow God. We're trying to follow God. We really want you to follow God. We think sin is the wrong path. We don't want you to keep going down it. And we recognize we were going down that path ourselves. Like, like Christians are not, we don't come together and say, look how great we are. We come together because we say, we're sinners who need Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we've become Christians. And so that's our message to everyone else too. We don't give up on people. We don't say, well, they're too far gone. They've taken too many wrong turns. We, we, we look at people with more genuine Christian love that knows they can be changed by the love of God and the transformation of God just like the rest of us have been. And then for ourselves, I hope we see ourselves with more humility. Not low self-esteem. That's not what humility is in the Bible. Not I'm no good, I'll never do anything right. That's, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is just recognizing I'm not who I should be. I'm not who God hoped I would be, but God still loves me and has continued to work in my life to help me change. There's a humility. It's not prideful. It's not, I'm not comparison, not trying to be better than anybody else because we've, we've all gone down the same bad path. It's not comparison. It's not pride. It's humility. Trusting God to be the one that helps me. And sometimes that's a challenge. I saw um, a study this last week done by Stanford, and they were digging in. It was some, when, when, it's a research project that sort of showed what I think you and I in, intuitively already feel, and that's that we struggle to recognize and ask for help. <laughs> We struggle to ask other people for help. We would rather say, no, I've got it. I can handle it. And and some of the reasons that came out of that research project were just what you would think they would be. We struggle to do that because we think it shows weakness to say we need help. We think that um, people look down on us and think we're not strong enough if we say we need help. But the gospel begins by recognizing, I need help. I have sinned. I have fallen short of the glory of God. I've taken wrong turns. And so let's say it this way as we end our lesson this morning. The gospel starts with, I need a Savior. And fortunately, we have a God who sent just such a Savior. And we'll get to dig into that even more next week. We're about to sing a song of invitation this morning. Um, Before we sing that song, let me say this. I always want people to know, if you'd like to talk privately, and and, um, many people today would rather talk privately than come before an entire group. Either way is fine. If you'd like to talk privately about faith, please let us know. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you about where you're at in your life and what Christianity means and, and what the Bible says. Whatever spiritual things you'd like to talk about, we'd love to talk with you. But during this next song, it's a chance to come before the entire church family. And maybe you're ready today to, to humble yourself before God. Maybe you've never taken the step that a lot of us have taken to recognize I'm a sinner and I've been pierced to the heart by the gospel of Jesus Christ and I don't want to fall sin anymore. I want to repent, meaning turn my life around, and I want to have my sins washed away in the waters of baptism. Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you see there in verse 38, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're ready to become a Christian today, we'd love to see you take that step. Maybe you'd like us to pray for you today as an entire church family. 
we'd love to do that also. If we can help in any way this morning publicly, everybody to come to the front now while we stand and while we sing. Is a fount of love from the source above, and he bids us all freely drink. Will you come to the fountain free? Will you come just for you?